Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jessica Steyer. Yes, hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Dr. Jessica <laughs> Steyer and Dr. Andrea Hi. Love. <laughs> and they run the Unbiased Science podcast. So let's start by getting to know you. Can you both tell me three things about yourselves that you think the audience would find interesting? Sure. Uh, Andrea, can I jump in or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I haven't yet told you, but I'm a public health scientist and an applied biostatistician. But um, I guess just quickly, I'll say that my interests have evolved quite a bit over time. I considered many other fields. Um, I studied to take the MCAT. I never actually took it. Um, I applied to law school. I actually got in. I did a few years of bench research, preclinical research, um, but ultimately population health stuck. And we'll talk more about that I'm, perhaps later. Um, two, I'd say that in addition to co-hosting the Unbiased Science podcast, I'm a mother of two young children, a two and a half year old daughter and a four year old son, and a whole host of fur babies who I'm hoping will behave themselves, uh, three dogs and, and two cats. And um, I'm also CEO of Vital Statistics Consulting, which is a public health consultancy specializing in advanced data analytics. And the last thing I'll say is that um, I'm in all these mom groups on social media, um, and I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> it's actually been the inspiration for quite a few of our podcast episodes, but I've been thrown out of some mom groups for being too aggressively pro-vaccine and pro-science, and I've been accused of weaponizing my credentials. Um, so those are my three fun facts. <laughs> Um, all right, how to follow that. So um, <laughs> the first thing, um, obviously, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about my background, but I'm an immunologist and microbiologist. And I think maybe the most interesting thing is that I've been really fascinated with critters and disease since I was a very small child. Um, I used to collect bugs in the woods uh, where I grew up in um, Eastern Connecticut and catalog them. But um, when I was about 10 years old, I started the habit of carrying around the medical textbook, the physician's guide to arthropods of medical importance. And I would read passages to whoever would sit still and listen to me tell them about some new, you know, insect vector that transmits some disease or eats their flesh while they're sleeping. So, um, you know, we kind of we kind of knew where I was going at an early age. I think the next thing that people are always surprised to hear is that I'm actually very introverted. I have actually social anxiety disorder. Um, but because of my passion for science communication and really an understanding of the need to convey science to the general public, um, I've really been forced to kind of stretch outside my comfort zone um, and be a little bit more extroverted. Um, you know, I'm used to hanging in a lab and 
minding my business. So it's been, it's been a, a journey there. And the last thing is you can probably see, um, I have a large collection of medals behind me. I am a marathoner and an ultra marathoner. Um, I was actually slated to run the Berlin marathon this year. And of course, um, all the races got postponed because of COVID. So I'm hoping that uh, with the vaccine in hand, we may be able to, to make that trip to Europe next summer. So. Well, that's really terrific. Thank you both uh, for that terrific introduction. Um, I'm an introvert as well, so uh, I know exactly where you're coming from. Let's move on then to your qualifications. Where did you both study and what are your, your qualifications exactly? Andrea, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. So um, I completed my undergraduate studies at Stony Brook University, um, and I have a bachelor's in science and biology with a focus in biochemistry. Um, and then I went on to complete my PhD in microbiology and immunology at New York Medical College. She's a real dummy, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, like Andrea, uh, I also completed my undergraduate studies at Stony Brook University. Uh, that's actually where we met. Um, I graduated with a bachelor's uh, in health science and a minor in biology. And I went on to get my master's in public health, also at Stony Brook, uh, with a focus in um, evaluative science. And then I went on to get my doctorate in public health with an emphasis in health policy uh, from the City University of New York Graduate Center. Another dummy over there. <laughs> <laughs> so your fields of expertise then are immunology and... Public health. Uh, I guess, oh, public yeah. health, okay. But there's data analytics in there as, as well. Yeah, so public health is really a very general term. And then within public health, you can specialize. My focus has been on applied biostatistics, applied statistics, yeah. With just a sprinkling of epidemiology. <laughs> How did you first become interested in science as a career? Andrew, you know, I, I, for me, I think there's, there was a little bit of a, a, a nature, nature versus nurture here going on. You know, I clearly had an affinity to the sciences when I was a little kid. I was very curious. I, you know, I grew up in kind of this borderline rural town. So I was always exploring in the woods. I actually happened to get Giardia probably a half dozen times as a child. Um, so I was kind of firsthand in the microbiology, um, but it really kind of evolved when I was in high school. So in 11th grade, um, I took a microbiology class with my, um, my previous advanced biology teacher, and he was just a fantastic teacher, fantastic mentor. And um, this microbiology class, you know, although it was high school level, we were, we were doing a lot of, you know, aseptic technique and skills that you would do ultimately in undergraduate or in college. And um, that kind of spurred my interest in continuing on with that specific subset of science. Um, I did an independent study with him my 12th grade year, right before I went to college. So I had him for three years in a row. And that was actually an epidemiological study looking at bacterial meningitis and a cost-benefit analysis for mandatory vaccination for college kids. You know, because of course we didn't have lab equipment available to do a really in-depth microbiology research, but um, that kind of really directed my my goals. Um, I wrote my I wrote my college applications essay about how I was going to get my PhD in microbiology and immunology, and I was going to study infectious diseases and 
pretty much follow that to, to a T up to this point. So, so for me, um, I, I always knew I gravitated toward healthcare. Originally, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, combined love of healthcare and animals. Um, but the clinical stuff really never stuck. I hated all of my, I told, tell this Andrea all the time, I hated my biology coursework or chemistry. I hated all of that stuff. I liked the math side of things. I always loved statistics, my calculus courses, all that. So for me, public health and specifically biostatistics was this perfect combination of healthcare and math. Um, and then also uh, my father suffered with um, from advanced emphysema for many years. And so I watched him struggle and that got me really passionate about public health and in particular uh, preventing chronic diseases. And so again, public health um, was that outlet for me. What advice would you give to anyone who's considering a career in science? Jess, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'd say, I have so many things to say, but it's not like you, first of all, a scientist, that's such a general term. And I think Andrea and I are evidence of that. You know, we always say Andrea's really studying science at the micro level. I'm studying science at the macro population health level. So, you know, it can evolve just, you know, as it did for me, I sort of had this general interest and then refined that over time. So it's not like you just wake up knowing exactly what you want to do. Um, it's, it's really an evolution. Um, and then the next thing I'd say is that something I've realized, and for me, the pandemic has really underscored this. We always say science isn't finished until it's communicated. So it's great that you pour all of this time and energy into actually doing science, but really the value is communicating that and not just within the scientific community, but to the general public. So that's something that's really was the impetus behind unbiased science and something that we're both very passionate about. Yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot of the things Jess said. Um, I think for me, so like I've I've gone to a lot of uh, elementary K through 12 schools to be guest speakers about, you know, being a scientist or being in science. And a lot of the kids, even in this day and age, are floored that a young woman, um, you know, is a scientist. And so I think, you know, part of it is really dispelling these misconceptions or preconceived notions of what a scientist is, you know, as just mentioned there's a whole gamut of different fields. You know, you could be a biostatistician, you could do mathematical modeling, you could be a bench scientist, you could be, you know, in the field. I mean, and there's a whole array of different types of science, botany, you know, zoology, microbiology, whatever the case happens to be. Um, so, you know, I think it's really just, if you have an interest in the natural world or answering the unanswered questions, that's really a good fit for a career in the sciences, because that's ultimately what the scientific method is, is trying to design questions, you know, that can be answered through a series of experimentation. Jessica, earlier you said science isn't finished until it's communicated. That's an absolute zinger, and I can virtually guarantee it's going to end up on one of my infographics at some point. But can you unpack it a little more for the audience, explain exactly what you, what you mean by it? Why isn't science complete until it's communicated? And what do you mean by communicated? Yeah, I mean, oh my goodness, I could go on and on about this. I think 
maybe if I if I could start with how rampant pseudoscience is, and it seems like you know, especially now with social media and as I, men as I mentioned, these mom groups, it's fascinating to me that people are so likely to believe these completely unfounded, non-evidence-based, ridiculous conspiracy theories, and yet we have all this this huge body of evidence, all this data that we've worked as scientists to amass. And it, the problem is that we can't go from the science to, you know, it, it's, we're not properly translating the science for the layperson. I think that's what it boils down to for me. You know, when you have these statistics, these, you know, fancy t terminology and chemicals that we, you know, we're, we're referencing in these um, scientific journals and manuscripts, the layperson doesn't know how to unpack those things. They don't know what that means. So I think it's on us as scientists to, to as I keep saying, you know, to unpack those things, to translate them in a way that's digestible for the general public. And I think that's the only way we can combat this real, I don't even know, this epidemic of pseudoscience. I, Andrea, can you, I get so passionate about this, I'm worried I'm not making Yeah, sense. no, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I do, I wanna give uh, Sir Sir Mark Walport um, a hat tip. He was the first one that that stated that phrase, science is not finished till it's communicated. But but ultimately, you know, the the issue that I've seen, you know, ultimately as, as a trained bench scientist is we all sit in these very, very tight niches of science, right? Your graduate research is this little particulate of a broader field of research. And you have a really broad overview of, you know, all the concepts, you're an expert in the field, but you know, you know more about this protein or this microbe or this pathway or whatever the case happens to be. And you get so stuck in the nitty gritty or scientists do generally that they forget the 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 forest for the trees right so they forget this big picture and even when we communicate it's such at this technical level that many of the most brilliant scientists can't have a conversation with the general population and convey these really really important concepts or fundamentals because they're so in that bubble of you know high intellect academia whatever the case happens to be and so you know i was very fortunate in my training to have a lot of practice teaching, tutoring, guest speaking with younger kids, as well as speaking at conferences, both internally and externally to get comfortable with explaining things for an audience that might not be familiar with what you're talking about. Um, and I think that really needs to be a heavy emphasis. Ultimately, I think anybody in a career in science should be taking science communication courses. Totally agree. And if I could just add one one more thing, context matters so much and science is nuanced. And so, you know, Andrea and I, we keep talking about these clickbait headlines, the media who, you know, they're not trained to to interpret science, they'll pick up on little tidbits from a study without realizing, okay, what's the context? You know, what, what groups were studied? What's the sample size? Is this generalizable? What are the limitations of the research? And so that's something that we are really up against right now and and something that you know the whole goal of our podcast has been to translate science and we've found that we've had four of our last episodes have been dedicated to dispelling myths and you know the these pseudoscientific crazy conspiracy theories that are being propagated by the by the media so yeah <laughs>
No, thank you. You've, you've both explained that very well, and you've really highlighted the tension between the information and the knowledge that's, that's held by scientists and the gulf in comprehension from the side of, of the average layperson. And the, the tension that arises there, of course, is that the scientist explains things in the, in the terms that the scientist understands, whereas the layperson needs it, you know, simplified a great deal or, or clarified or or even just a huge amount of context provided before any of this makes sense. And when the media gets involved, the media is less interested in accurate communication, I would say, and more in interested in attention because that's what drives clicks and, and, and uh, readership. So of course, as you say, the, the media will grab a headline, uh, you know, scientists will say, Oh, it appears that SARS-CoV-2 has begun to mutate into a different, <laughs> different strain. Don't even get um, me started on that one. But by that, what we actually mean is, and the media goes, that's fine, we've heard enough, you know, dangerous new strain has been unleashed, blah, 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 you know, watch out, you know, all your kids are going to die, blah, right. blah, blah. And the scientists go, we just found a new protein, right. Right. you know, uh, um, <laughs> and, uh, and there's no chance once the genie's out of the bottle. There's, no, you there's, can't. There's no can't way put it back in. Have, it's it's this constant yeah. firefighting where one single sensationalized headline or one retracted paper is decades of you know refutations because we have to put in all of this extra work to walk it back. Shout out to good old Andy Wakefield, right, Andrea? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the the irony is that when scientists do come in and provide the clarification, that you know, the uh, the public goes, "Oh yeah, this sounds a bit sus." You know, uh, what are they trying to cover up here? Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, there is there is that tension. Scientists desperately want to communicate what they've they've learned, but they have to do it to an audience that lacks the the background the context the the scientific expertise um and the problem is that one the public isn't actually trained to hear and understand what they're being told and two the scientists typically aren't trained to communicate it and this is where i think um one of you mentioned science communication training that seems to be a critical point i would say the media needs this as well in recent years, I've noticed that some media outlets are actually starting to specialise. They're, they're getting a, a particular person to to be their their sort of science journalist, and that person is typically given at least some kind of training in in how to speak to scientists. Um, when I started uh, creating this podcast, I actually looked up tips on how to interview scientists. And I found some some sort of media training um, websites that said, you know, these are the questions you should be asking the scientists, ask them about their research, ask them about practical applications, and ask them to communicate stuff, you know, in, in simple terms, ask them to use analogies to explain their, their research, because that's an excellent way to communicate complex ideas in a simple way. So I'd, I've sort of tried to model my podcast on on that kind of approach, which I think is is much more helpful. Mm -hmm. One thing I've noticed is that 
there is actually one group of people who are typically really good at communicating ideas and they are and they are ironically the people we trust least and that is politicians now the average politician does receive media training a lot of it and and necessarily they have to be on message they've got talking points everything is carefully stage managed and yeah there's a lot of artificiality in there but when it comes to getting across policy ideas or basic government positions on a certain issue it works and it's solid and they are trained in how to answer questions um in a way that you know removes ambiguity and and makes the position clear or if the government's in trouble they're trained to answer in a way that adds ambiguity ambiguity and, and muddies it as much as possible <laughs> but the bottom line is they have media training and they're actually pretty good communicators and I think it's it's very frustrating that these the politicians that we trust the least have got the best media training to communicate their ideas, which they're actually very good at doing, whereas the scientists who we should be listening to more of haven't actually been given that. And that, I think, is going to be an, an ongoing problem. Plus, of course, the tension between the scientists and the media, where the scientists said, say, well, all we said to you was such and such, and you completely distorted it into some weird big thing because you, you wanted your attention grabbing headlines. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a, a three-way problem between the intended audience, which is the, the public, the media and their motivations and goals, and then the scientists who want to get the information out but aren't always sure about how to do that. And I think it's ironic that the, the people who are, are best trained in uh, in media communication are actually the, the politicians, when, when ideally it should be the scientists. Because this has a direct bearing, obviously, on the way health intersects with public policy. The average person on the street goes, why are politicians making decisions about my health? Now, a smart politician will say, well, we're not making decisions in isolation. We have committees who talk to experts and we have um we have conferences that that we we hold to bring in the scientists and the doctors to advise us and we've got medical experts you know in the civil service who advise us and this kind of thing but that's not always very communicated very well it, it tends to be all about you know our government is performing very well and under tremendous um pressure and and despite the the challenges of this pandemic were going very well and look at our approval ratings and and look how safe we're keeping you and you know we really think we've we've done so much better than the opposition would have done and it tends to devolve in a lot of political point scoring what they really should be doing is pushing the the professionals and those with the scientific and medical expertise out the front say these are the people who guide our decisions your your decisions about public health are not being simply made by politicians they are being directed by people who are specially trained highly trained in these fields and that's who's actually making the who's driving the the policy do you think that that's a, a fair summary of of the situation um yeah no i mean i think i think there there's a lot of challenges and a lot of that is linked to who has access to those training tools right to these skill sets that you know really rely on effective communication and i think you know we we do need to have more of this kind of bridging the gap between you know 
politics and ultimately government, which is going to dictate and organize healthcare, health disparities, you know, public public health policy. I mean, we're seeing this in the midst of this pandemic and the handling of the pandemic and, you know, country by country variability in handling of the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of it ultimately boils down to, you know, mismatching communication, I think. And I don't know what the what the climate is uh, in in Australia, but um, here in the U.S., I mean, Andrea and I get accused on a daily basis of having some ulterior motive or being, you know, shills for pharma. There's this real distrust of science that is just something that we're 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 up against. So it's you know, first we need to somehow reestablish trust, <laughs> and then we need to also figure out how to communicate properly. And, and as we all just kind of said at the beginning of this um, chat, you know, we're all introverts. I think that people who tend to gravitate towards science maybe aren't naturally the best communicators. So it might take a little bit of work. <laughs> yeah, um, I would say off, off the cuff, there's very few extroverted uh, <laughs> scientists that I, I can really think of. Um, one science communicator who has always greatly impressed me, and she was probably the the scientist who got me interested in in following science communication in the first place, is Dr. Anna Zakerson, um, who's in Europe. She's a Swedish scientist currently resident in Germany, I believe. And she runs a Facebook page called Dr. Anna's Imaginarium. And she's a really interesting uh, excited, passionate person who delivers her ideas very clearly and is also great to talk to. I, she was the first person I, um, I interviewed on this, on this podcast and she's extremely personable. She's got a great sense of humor and she communicates extremely well. And uh, she's sort of the kind of exemplar that I would hold up as what people should be looking for in, in a science communicator, and of course, there's there's plenty of other people who who are who are um, who are who are very good as well. I would say um, uh, Dr. Peter Hotez, for example, as well. If you've seen him on um, on the media at, at any point, he's he's done a huge amount of work. Dr. Fauci also, I think, does a great job in communicating some very difficult and challenging facts and statistics and and updates about the current situation in in the U.S. and despite the phenomenal pressure he must be under, I, I think he does a quite outstanding job. So perhaps you can both tell me about any recent research that you've done and, and what the real life applications are. Sure, I could jump in. Um, so my firm, Vital Statistics, we are working with a very large health system in New York, um, and we did a zero survey for them. So antibody research, so their employees volunteer to have their blood drawn and tested for antibodies to, um, to COVID-19. And so we just wrapped, we collected all the data, we've begun analysis. Um, some interesting preliminary findings are that um, quite a few people actually had antibodies <laughs> to COVID and um, really had, you know, didn't report any symptoms, never knew that they were exposed. And so I think for, for me, this really underscores how important um, asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic spread is. You know, we can be highly contagious and spreading this this virus even without knowing that we've that we've had it or been exposed. So um, that's just one example of something that I think is um, 
pretty relevant. <laughs> Definitely relevant. Um, something that I recently wrapped on, uh, I've been working the last couple of years on a uh, immunotherapy research project um, using CAR T. So CAR T are a particular type of T cells that have been engineered to um, target uh, traditionally cancer, but also other disease states. And in this, um, in this instance, we've been studying CAR T in the context of immunotherapy or an HIV infection. And uh, we recently published a paper in Journal of Immunological Methods um, this past September. Um, but basically the, the overarching goal of this project was to identify methods to um, screen and identify cell therapy options for HIV infection. So a lot of these treatments that we're hearing about for cancer, um, this CAR T therapy, there's some very promising information that we may even be able to use it to treat these chronic or latent viral infections like HIV and possibly other disease states as well. Andrea, you look like a proud mama right now. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk immunotherapy all day long. <laughs> so how did you both get into science communication? So, oh, Andrea, did you know? No, wanna... no. I mean, I was just going to say, so I feel like, um, you know, my kind of early forays into science communication were really, um, you know, in the scope of, of teaching and tutoring. Um, so when I was an undergraduate, I tutored and uh, was a TA for a lot of classes for undergrads. I TA'd organic chemistry lab. I know, just hated orgo, but um, I liked it so much. I went back for more. And then I actually served as an academic tutor for all the student athletes at Stony Brook. So something that's really challenging for college athletes is that they're often away um, for games when their important classes are. So they spend a lot of time playing catch up and needing to make up exams, make up lab reports, make up all sorts of things. So I actually worked um, in addition to working in the lab and taking my own classes, I worked as a tutor um, for the Student Athlete Development Center to make sure all these kids were able to catch up on their classes, um, help them prep for tests. Um, I did a lot of test prep, exam study sessions, things like that. Um, and it really, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go to a session and I'd hear from one of the football players who was kind of struggling to pass this math class and he would come and tell me he got a B plus on his exam. And I just, I just felt like, you know, I was doing something right in that I was taking my knowledge base and giving it to him in a way that he could understand and digest. Um, and I think, I think it really hit home where there was this one, one guy I was working with and he had never been taught how to do long division by hand. He had gone through from childhood school by school. And every single time, you know, he had a question about it. The teacher would tell him, you know, use your calculator or it just works this way. You know, and he never really understood why three over four equals 0.75 and when we got to the type of math where you actually needed that foundational knowledge, he was really struggling. And, you know, there's this one moment where it clicked and he got it, you know, and it just made every made his life simpler. Right. And, and I think from there, I really started to understand the importance of being able to translate complex topics for people that are not familiar with them. And, and, you know, with Jess and I, with this podcast, it, it, it evolved because we shared this similar frustration and, you know, the, the dearth of access to digestible science for the general public. Um, and I'll let Jess kind of jump in there. Yeah. So, um, yes, <laughs> lots to say about this prior to getting into, uh, health 
analytics, consulting. I was actually a professor at a university in New York teaching uh, research methodology, epidemiology, biostatistics to physician assistant students, so to future clinicians. And something that really struck me was that I think people just assume that if you're a doctor or a PA or a clinician or nurse, that you understand science. And we have the utmost respect for clinicians. I just want to say that. But but they're not by default scientists. So it was really interesting. There was this, I don't know, at first the clinicians or cl clinician students, I should say, were very resistant to learning the research methodology. But then once I gave that that foundation, they all had this aha moment of, oh, wow, that's why, we, why we're designing research. Oh, there's something called a counterfactual. You know, we're trying to compare these two groups. Why are we trying to compare? Anyway, so that was my, that was my aha moment. It was a fantastic experience for me. I absolutely love teaching. Um, and then as Andrea said, there was also this sort of sense of like necessity, like this duty that I had as a scientist. Um, just, I know I've said it already, but like seeing what's been swirling on social media, the impact that that's had on, you know, I don't know, supersonic pseudoscience. Um, you know, I, Andrea and I kept in touch over the past decade. We're messaging each other and saying, we have to do something. Even before the pandemic, it was actually vaccines that got us going. Um, and every mom group, at least 10 times a day, you know, oh, is there a pediatrician who doesn't force vaccines on you? And, you know, talking about, don't eat, I can't, I get very upset when I talk about it. And so Andrea and I kept in touch and we said, we just, we have to spread the science. We have to talk to these people, these lay people and have them understand, really demystify the science and teach them that just because something has a chemical name that doesn't automatically make it bad, you know, so. I don't know if that made sense, but that was my sort of journey. <laughs> no, that that's really great from from both of you. Thank you. And it leads nicely to my next question, which is how has social media affected the way you communicate your knowledge and ideas? Because social media at first glance seems to be an ideal platform for communication and yet some of these platforms are surprisingly limited twitter for example each post has a very strict word limit so you end up having to say to people at the start thread and then there's about 20 right. posts where you try to communicate as concisely right. as possible and you still end up with 20 posts and some people just will take a look and go oh, first post second post yeah i'm not going to read the rest of that and they walk right. away. A similar thing in, in Facebook, although you've the word limit is incredibly generous. No one wants to wade through a huge wall of text. Um, videos and, in, and infographics work best on, on Facebook and probably on, on Twitter as well, unless you can really just shoot out those nice little bite-sized uh, chunks of information that can be squeezed into a single post. So social media is very liberating, but it does have some awkward restrictions that tend to sort of force you to use a, one method or, or another, depending on what pl platform you're on. So how has that affected the way you communicate? Um, so, so, oh, I'm sorry, go on. No, you go, you go. 
I was going to say social media is a total do double-edged sword. It's like the source of this, you know, it, it provides a platform for all this pseudoscience to sort of at rapid speed be transmitted and consumed, but it's also this really incredible platform for us to spread science. So as you said, you know, there are all these restrictions, character limits, word limits, at least daily, Andrea and I are cursing, like, how do we shorten this post? Because, you know, it is really difficult to truncate these studies that have maybe taken place over years, you know, to sort of distill that down into a paragraph or two. So that's been really challenging. And to your point, it's it's funny that you say, you know, videos, that's a really great way to um, to effectively communicate. Andrew and I, you know, we're so we're we're doing this podcast in our non-existent spare time, is what we always say. And you know, we both work full time, family life, home life, and so it's so hard for us to carve out time to, you know, shower and brush our hair <laughs> to, to get camera ready and actually communicate. Um, but that does seem to be the most effective modality, um, especially in real time when people are able to ask questions and you can interface with them and answer. Um, um, you know, in a live setting. But Andrea, sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I mean, I was going to, you know, kind of reiterate that, you know, we know that misinformation spreads six times faster than than facts. And um, that is a challenge. You know, I, I, I have a love hate relationship with social media, you know, it's a it's a necessary evil in, in the current era that we're in, you know, even when you look at marketing, marketing is all digital, everything is digital now. So, um, you know, we publish in peer reviewed scientific journals, but that's not what the everyday person is reading. They're reading, and most people are consuming their news on social media. They're not going to news sources anymore, right? They're, re they're seeing a repost and maybe it's misinterpreted there. And originally it was misinterpreted. And so you have these multiple levels of misinterpretation. And then it's this game of telephone where it gets magnified. Um, and I feel like a lot of times we, instead of, putting out, you know, information, we're, 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 we're putting out fires. We're doing a lot of firefighting. We're doing a lot of, oh man, can you believe that they posted this? Now we have to go spend two hours creating content to debunk it, um, which, you know, unfortunately is necessary these days, right? We need to ensure that people continue all these public health mitigation measures. We need to ensure that people get the vaccine when it's available. And so it requires this counterattack and we're, you know, we're almost constantly on alert, right? We have to, you know, keep our, our hand to the pulse of what's going on on social media. And we have a plan of attack pretty much daily. Okay, we're going to roll out this, we're going to roll out this, we're going to prep for this, we're going to make sure we address this. Um, because, you know, it's, it's a snowball effect, right? Once something like that takes root, people need to respond almost instantaneously to debunk or, or clarify something. Just one final thing, if I if I may, is that um, we, as we've discussed, you know, we don't have that communication training. Uh, in, in in addition, I feel like I also need graphic design training, and I need, you know, I don't know how to create, um, you know, these posts that are going to. You have to. How do I attend? How do I grab someone's attention? You know, we all know that people don't have a whole lot of attention. You know, the attention span's not great these days. So, how are we going to capture that attention and do so effectively and effectively communicate the science? So, it's like there are so many different hats you have to wear as a scientific communicator. It's very challenging. Yeah, I mean, certainly running my own Facebook page, I've 
had to learn a lot of stuff along the way as, as I go. I mean, um, to create my infographics, I found a really good site called canva.com where there's a huge range of templates that you can use to create your own infographics and you can mix and match them and upload your own media and that kind of stuff, which is how I, I create all the stuff for the vaccination station. But it has been a real uh, learning curve. And if it's, if it's, um, challenging for for me someone who's, who doesn't even have a, a scientific background then for someone who has the scientific background and has a huge amount of information they really want to convey then i can imagine just how challenging it is for you guys because you want to be able to get across the essentials in a way that's coherent but not dumbed down to the point where it's actually inaccurate and that's that's the danger obviously of oversimplifying so people come away with just sound bites but very little substance behind them which is as we've observed earlier is the big problem with mainstream media miscommunicating science everyone i've spoken to on this podcast has has, has said to me yes social media is a double-edged sword because on the one hand it gives a tremendous voice for science communicators uh, whereas at the, on the other hand it is probably more than anything else the perfect network system for village idiots and that's pretty much what what we see all over facebook twitter and and um and even some of the uh, the crazier ones like vote and gab and and more recently parlor and because social media uh, is geared towards pushing people towards their, their interests via algorithms, echo chambers arise very quickly. And once people are in an echo chamber, they begin to think that that represents reality and they're reluctant to step, to step outside the echo chamber because they're already being told what they want to hear. And that's the other problem. People need to learn that it's not about what you want to hear sometimes what you what you what you have to hear is actually what you don't want to hear reality is complex reality is, is big and sophisticated and reality is very often unpleasant so the challenge is to confront ourselves with the reality confront ourselves with scientific facts that may be unsettling that that may uh, strike at deep-rooted prejudices we've had for a long time or strike at the core of, of basic assumptions we've had about the universe. Maybe if we're religious, it, it could present huge challenges for some aspects of our belief system and our general worldview. And even if we're not religious, it, it might actually present other challenges in, in terms of, of ethics or, or politics. And that to me is is really the crux of it. People don't like to be challenged. People don't like to feel that their worldview is threatened. So they retreat to safe spaces and echo chambers when really they should be putting themselves out, ourselves out there and, and challenging themselves. And I think that's the beauty of science, that it, it simply presents us with the evidence and the facts and the data insofar as it has been known and understood so far. And it says, this is, this is reality. Let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. And that I think is, is what's so exciting about, about science communication. This is such a lovely conversation that we're having, Dave. This is so refreshing to actually speak to someone who gets it and is like-minded. So thank you for this. <laughs> uh, you're very welcome. I mean, I, I'm happy to be, you know, just a, a regular dad who can represent the man on the street who, who just comes along and, and does his best to understand what the scientists are, are trying to communicate. So 
it's really, really helpful to have conversations with experts such as yourselves who can give me your, your side of, of the picture and show me what it's, what it's like from your perspective, because I can appreciate the frustration that you must face on, uh, on an ongoing basis. I mean, I, I'm immensely frustrated with these people. I'm not, I'm not even a scientist. <laughs> well, and to have people who don't have the expertise, you know, sort of come at you. It, there really is this death of expertise. I mean, certainly in the US, I think it's a global issue. I think that social media gives people a platform to feel like they're experts in something. And it's like, you know, no, we, we really, by definition, are experts. We have, we've trained for years, we've studied, we've worked in the fields. I mean, at some point, I always say, you know, if, if I have a, you know, a leaky roof, I'm going to call a roofer. You know, if I have a scientific question, I'm going to consult a scientist. And um, there, that's just, I don't know, that's just not happening these days. So we need to take no. back. The <laughs> analogy that I, I like to present to Andy Vaxxers is, well, you wouldn't ask a plumber to take out your appendix. There so, you, you know, At some point, even you recognize that expertise and specialization is essential. So all you need to do is broaden that a little bit and realize right. just, just how far it applies to, to science and medicine.